This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Peston. We've got a treat today, haven't we? We have, because we have with us uh, the founder of Octopus Energy, Greg Jackson. It's a company that's gone from being a kind of challenger energy company to one of the biggest energy companies. I think they claim on one measure they're the biggest energy company. Yeah, by revenue. Um, They're a company that's interesting for lots of reasons, not just because of what's going on in the energy retail side, but also that the software that they've developed, this Kraken platform, which is basically their customer service software, which is used by other energy companies as well. Um, so we want to ask him about that, don't we? Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much to talk to him about. One is, you know, in a world where we don't have enough world leaders, how has he in a short space of time created something that looks as though it could be genuinely uh, a global leader? A bit about what makes an entrepreneur, because he definitely is one. And then just a lot about... You know, whether we can look forward in this country to prices, energy prices that aren't quite so punitive and, you know, what the future of renewables is, you know, in a world where we're all, well, many of us are desperately worried about climate change. Yeah. So here's our interview with Greg Jackson. Lovely to have you here, Greg. Um, I've already talked about you on this podcast, obviously bigging up the borough, a Teesside lad as well. Um, so I guess the, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, did you ever imagine, given you grew up in the same place I did, you know, somewhere that was prospects were not great for us growing up. Did you ever think one day you'd end up owning like one of the biggest energy companies in the UK? First of all, I should say I, I do have a shareholding, but yeah. I definitely don't own it. There's a, a lot of big shareholders. But it's come from you. You been, created it, yeah. is the point. Yeah, I've been really candid. I kind of did. Um, it might not have thought energy, but you know, I was always wanting to do something you know, something meaningful. And, and I'm over the moon, it, it's turned out to be Octopus Energy. But I always had that kind of sense that I didn't want to follow the path most trodden. I wanted to make my own decisions and hopefully that would lead somewhere interesting. And when you were at school... Did you already show sort of entrepreneurial talent? Did you set up little businesses? Did you flog stuff to school kids? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say it was entrepreneurial talent, but when I was about 14 or 15, um, along with a couple of mates, uh, we wrote our first video game. 
and were duplicating on a tape-to-tape -tape <laughs> cassette recorder, remember those, with photocopied inlays and then selling it to the local newsagent to sell it to people. I don't think it sold many copies, but you know we hadn't sent them off to get reviewed in a computer magazine for mail order. There was almost zero revenue, but there was that desire to create. Yeah. But that is quite ambitious for somebody who's 14, 15. W where did that ambition come from then? Uh, you know what? Um, I talked a lot about my mum, right? Um, my mum was a single mum. She had, uh, when my parents split up, uh, I was eight, my sister was seven, and my brother was a year old. She had no job, three kids, and she went to college to get qualifications. She worked in a bar in the evenings. And then she campaigned for what she believed in at weekends. Which was what? I mean, a whole load of things. Like she was, uh, she was for example, very much into nuclear disarmament. Um, so she would go and join those huge marches of the 80s. Women's refuges, you know, she helped set them up. And so I think um, it's hard enough being a parent when there are two of you. To be a single parent with three kids, no money, and then do all those other things is just remarkable. And I think one of the things was we had very, very little, which meant I was never scared of not having much. It's kind of, if I saw what my mum could do, well, it kind of gave me all the confidence in the world to be able to make decisions that I think a lot of other people might be more nervous about. Because you were afraid of loss. Yeah, not afraid of... and. and in the words of Yaz, the only way is up. Right. So, <laughs> can I can I engage just briefly in some cod psychology? Because years ago, I made a program about what drives many wealth creators and leaders. Many of them didn't have a dad growing up, or dad left quite early, or some there were even really very tragic stories. And you know, talking to psychologists, they did say to me there is a bit in that mentality about wanting to prove something to your absent dad. Do you think there was some of that going on? I don't know about that, um, but I think there's a couple of things that were very formative. One was around that age, a lot of boys start transferring their parental imprint um, attachment from their mum to their dad. And suddenly my dad was gone. And, you know, you've got a very underdeveloped ego at that age. And so uh, in a way, you feel your dad's leaving you, not leaving your mum. And I think mm. that meant, you know, um, for, for a while, I was, I was quite affected by it. And, and mum took me to a child psychologist, one or two sessions. Honestly, revolutionary. Um, and really gave me a lot of confidence. And, uh, and mum was just this huge bundle of love. It sounds really amazing. I think then the, the, the sort of uh, second thing was, I remember around that age, someone said to me, you're the man of the family now. Now, of course, mm. <laughs> it's a sort of sexist phrase. Yeah. But um, when you're, I don't know, eight or nine years old, it kind of sticks with you. And, you know, I guess being the eldest child and feeling like sort of people have told you've got a sense of responsibility. And I don't know, it's something I wear very easily. Yeah. Because you, you ended up, to begin with, leaving school at 16, didn't you? Yeah. Why was that? I was, I, was, this, I was writing these video games, right? And um, you could see that even then, by the way, technology was improving at this incredible pace. And I realised that the talent, the skills that I had to write video games were soon going to be irrelevant because technology was moving on so much. So I thought, I've just got to do this while I can. And so, yeah, I left school to write video games. It, I went back quite soon, by yeah, the Yeah, I was going to say, it didn't go very well, did it? <laughs> so, the, uh, well, uh, the first game, I worked for a company for a while, and that was fine, writing little bits of code here and there. But the first game I wrote all on my own. It was really well programmed. It was terribly bad to play. And it turns <laughs> out, you know, I, mean, I learned a lot then about the importance of customers, because it doesn't matter how good your internal processes are. Like, the, the code was great. Yeah. It's the customer experience that matters, and especially in a game. So it didn't get published, and I'd done months of work on it, and it, I kind of thought, like, I could give this another go, or uh, they're about to start 
taking in a new inlet for A-levels. Maybe I should go and do that and then try this again after I've got some qualifications. And, and during that time, going back into education, were you still doing entrepreneurial stuff? Were you still trying to think of businesses? Because there were some before Octopus, weren't there? Um, yeah, I think the main thing I did, uh, so when I was at university, uh, it was a fantastic experience, right? I, I think... Um, I'd always been able to do quite well at exams without revising and doing homework and stuff. Oh, I hate people so, like you. So when I, oh, well, so this, this, when I got to university, uh, <laughs> we kind of sat around, seven or eight of us in the tutorial group, uh, economics, and um, we got given an essay. And I thought, brilliant, I can write this essay with my eyes closed. So I wrote this essay, handed it in a week later, whatever. And we sat around and the tutor was reading out, you know, going, well done, Natasha. Matt, this is excellent. And on mine, he'd stopped marking it halfway through and said, next time, read the materials. <laughs> <laughs> and so Sussed. I kind of... Yeah, it's a <laughs> it was an incredible lesson. So I decided that next time I would read the materials. And thereafter, actually, university went really well. And I did very well in the first year exams. And, and that was a the time there was some student union elections. So I I became sort of president of our college student union and loved it and kind of actually created these, um, really enjoyed creating uh, really fun events. So they'd always put on discos and stuff, but so we kind of scaled them up and we had like, you know, fairground ride style things and made them more and more fun. Uh, I remember this great one where we got a fire eater and a knife thrower. Oh my and, God. Um, and they checked the insurance. Yeah. <laughs> we were not insured and the guy had a finger missing. <laughs> anyway, so th I mean, it was fun doing all these kind of semi-entrepreneurial things yeah. and kind of trying to create yeah, great experiences for people. So, so talk us about how you get from the junior common room to, I mean, you're obviously worth several hundred million at the moment. So how did that happen? So when I was at university, there were loads of recruitment events. There's all accountancy firms and banks and stuff. Yeah. And coming from, it's really interesting, coming from Teesside where, you know, jobs are industry. Like you have this huge chemical works and steel works right on your doorstep. The sky back then would be lit up at night by the flaring. And, you know, I wanted to work in something that felt more real. So I went to work for Procter & Gamble. They had offices in the Northeast. They uh, manufacture stuff. Mm. Um, and it, it kind of felt a natural fit. But what I really wanted to be was an entrepreneur. And I thought I'd be at P&G for two or three years. Um, and, and then you sort of start to get addicted. But it was like, if I'm not careful, I'm never going to leave this. And so I became really desperate to leave. Mm. I, I saw an ad in a magazine for a, um, someone to run a small manufacturing business. It had just been bought by a couple of entrepreneurs and they needed someone to run it. And so I took it on. And um, what, was the, what were they doing? Manufacturing mirrors in North London. So okay. uh, it, there are not many factories in North London, mm -hmm. but there I was about 26, 27 years old. We had an 80-ish staff. And just to be clear, because it's supposed to be impossible to do manufacturing in the UK, and in particular in a high-cost part of the country like London, um, but that wasn't your experience. So, I mean, are you more, uh, shall we say, optimistic about the future of manufacturing in this country than many are? Well, what we ended up doing there was we manufactured uh, low-volume lines, and prototypes in our factory in London. But when we got to those really high predictable volumes, then we'd manufacture overseas as well. And the balance worked really well. And I think- um, And does the business still exist? I have no idea. I mean, I, I sold it you know, ages ago, but certainly the factory is now a housing estate. Which sort of tells you the story of Britain, really. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, there we go. So we've had computer games being made, mirrors, you've done fairground events for people. How on earth did this lead to Octopus? Yeah, so I think- um, Deep down, I'm a techie. Yeah. By the way, that's done an economics degree and loves economics. And when um, you were running the mirror business, were yeah. you keeping up your tech skills? Yeah, we. <laughs> I wrote some software to help um, optimize the economics. So, for example, the way you use materials really matters uh, to reduce waste. There was a lot we could do to optimize. 
And so um, in the evenings when there was no one else around, uh, I'd be trying to create a sort of algorithms for better use of materials, as an example. And, and doing a lot to reduce the manufacturing cost, but also be able to get better products for the same price. So the lean production stuff. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, a very basic version of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's really interesting how much low-hanging fruit there often is in processes. You, you, all you had to do was walk around the factory at the end of the day and see the offcuts to know that we could do a better job. And I was fairly obsessive about that. Yeah. But I think um, that bit about being a techie, so when I was at university, I had to write a dissertation. And I did it, obviously, very last minute, like so many do. But there was a little clause. So annoying that. <laughs> I think it was like ten or 15,000 words. There was this clause that said every diagram counts for 350 words. So I wrote a bit of software that just created an awful lot of diagrams. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they were really good diagrams, by the way. But you know, so everywhere you go, there was these opportunities to use technology to improve stuff. And, and so, you know, I had a couple of businesses where tech was key. And, and so, really, what were they in? Well, one was in sort of direct mail and data processing. But the next one, again, identifying there that we employed about 100 people, but there were three of them that did the data work, really good data work. And, and they were responsible for half of all of the profit. And so essentially the next business I started was just like, we'll do, we'll focus on data. Now very quickly, we actually had to build software. So we started in 2003 and we ended up building enterprise software and our biggest client ended up being SAP, you know, the German mm -hmm. software company. Yeah. So you were writing software for SAP? Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. And, and we were the only company, I think globally, other than uh, themselves and Google, that were allowed to put our software, uh, our servers in their data centers. By the way, look, my techie skills by here were not sufficient. Um, I, I, so you were more now in managing other people. Yeah, right? I co-founded that business with um, a guy called James Edison. He's my co-founder at Octopus. Mm -hmm. um, he's someone I knew from university. Yeah. He's a brilliant engineer, brilliant software engineer, brilliant architect. And, and I think that uh, look, I've, almost everything I've done, I've partnered with people. He's been the most consistent partner, has he? Yeah. Um, and you know, the thing and about are you him, friends? Do you get on? We got on great, but we're not friends. I mean, I, we never socialised, never have done. That's uh, so interesting. Why is that? Well, it's interesting. It applies by the way with our CFO as well, our co-founding yeah. CFO, Stuart uh, Jackson, no relation. Um, we were at university with him as well. He did economics. Yeah. They've both got incredible integrity, incredible dedication. But your colleagues, not friends. We're colleagues, not friends, yeah. And um, and we have been since the day we founded the business. I think it's really helpful because no one else who works in the company has to worry that, you know, this is a sort of cozy group of friends yeah. working for their own interests. I mean, we're all really focused on the company. Did you make that decision then? Not like, did you say, let's keep this professional and not, you know, socialise and well, be friends? We hadn't socialised before we started the business. Oh, you know? right. We just knew each other. And but I think, how did that come about? That you then, because you would assume it would yeah. be from sitting around chatting as mates Getting and going, drunk. "I've got this idea." Yeah, yeah. but it didn't. So no, how, not how at did all. you get together? So for the business we started in two thousand three, um, I'd, I'd phoned James up a couple of years earlier when I had a factory. He'd been a factory manager at one point. I said, "Have you got any advice?" I'd been at university with him, so yeah. knew him. Has he got any advice for running a factory? And he said, "Well, I've got a software business. You got any advice for running a software business?" So we swapped some advice. Yeah. Um, and then when I started the business in 2003, I gave him a call and said, "Look, I'm starting a technology business. Do you want to be part of it?" And because um, he had his other business, uh, he said, "Look, I'll help you part time." Yeah. But it was going quite well, so he folded over quite quickly and and worked with us, and we sold that successfully. And that was when we had the opportunity to. Think about what we do next. We did a, a few things, yeah. but obviously very key among that was Octopus. But I've got to say, at the same time as we started Octopus, he and I also helped start a business in the medical sector, which I'm incredibly proud of. Um, so I, I guess- so we'll, we'll come back to that maybe yeah. in a bit. But I suppose what we wanted to get on to was Kraken. Hmm. Um, so I suppose a couple of questions about that is, tell us 
how you developed it. Is that you personally? Is it a was it always a sort of team thing from the beginning? And explain to us why it's different from what other energy companies sort of customer management systems, process systems. Why is it different? Yeah, look, um, Kraken is the software platform that we use to run Octopus, and now we provide to other companies as well. Um, and is it the basis of your success, which is what everybody says? I think our customer obsession is even more the basis of success, but that's only enabled by Kraken. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, attention on Kraken because it's a tech business and, and they are very valuable. Uh, but, you know, our energy business is close to profit as well. In fact, we would have made a profit, I think, a year or two ago, but we put £150 million into looking after customers. And so, uh, you know, at some point, we will have a profitable energy business, and, and we sort of have to, to make it self-sustaining. So Kraken does three things very, very well. Um, it enables us to provide much better customer service. That's because it, traditionally in a large company, they've had decades worth of all these software being glued together. And so when you phone up, uh, I mean, first of all, it makes, they make a lot of mistakes. And they're, and they're constantly patching up an old system, and essentially. Patching, and you phone up and they'll say, look, I need to hand you over to another department because they know how to use the right system. And, and everyone gets handed pills. It's very inefficient and it's very bad service. The second thing Kraken does very well is help cut costs. So uh, because we don't have all these systems and different departments, we can, uh, first of all, make fewer mistakes. And if we do make a mistake or if someone needs to speak to us, it's a much smoother operation. So the, the data according to one management consultancy is that uh, Octopus with Kraken is 50 to 100 pounds per year lower cost to run per customer. So you know you've got millions of customers, that adds up. And then the last bit is um, it really helps with the energy transition because fundamentally in the world of renewables, we're moving from a couple of hundred fossil fuel power stations you can turn on and off to having to forecast the generation from uh, you know tens of thousands of uh, wind turbines and hundreds of thousands of solar panels in solar farms and then you know, potentially millions of rooftop solar, and then the consumption of electric cars, each of which uses as much electricity as a house, uh, batteries at homes. It's certainly a much more complex system. I took an ask you about that because I've was recently been reading about these businesses located in Denmark, these software businesses, which are all about scraping data on who's got the power and where it's needed. And they just do it to trade. They're basically arbitrage firms that are looking for a profit. But is your system essentially doing that, but in the interests of your customers, as it were. That's exactly right. So, you know, look, um, energy is full of all these kind of, of middlemen of language uh, uh, who are trading and trying to make a, a turn on the energy before it gets to the consumer. And I think the idea of an energy retailer really should be, like, like, like supermarkets, it should be our job to try to manage the entire supply chain to find the cheapest products for you based on what we, you know, the products and services you want. And do you have your own trading book as well, though? Well, what we do is we, we we contract directly with lots of generators, and then we buy in the market as well. But the whole thing is like, how can we find ways, particularly with renewables, to pass you savings? So for example, uh, we've got this tariff called Agile. The price varies every half hour based on what's going on in the market. Over the last year or two, as energy as we're coming through the energy crisis, consumers on Agile are getting the, the kind of lower energy costs ahead of everyone else. Because everyone else, you know, you've bought the energy in advance, so you're kind of stuck with prices from the past. Mm. But Agile also means that, you know, look, um, you don't need to check the price every half hour. There are some really simple rules. Uh, it's always cheap at night. It's uh, always expensive at peak time, 4.30 p.m. till 7 p.m. And it's particularly cheap if it's windy or sunny, right? Now, if you just know those things, then, you know, when it comes to doing your washing or dishwasher or whatever, or cooking, 
You so put the washing machine on at night and, and bother the neighbours, basically, is what well, they're saying. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not a night, though, right? I mean, it can be, as long as it's before 4.30pm yeah. or after 7pm, it's fine. This isn't about stupidly complex things. But the whole point being, like, we're not saying everyone should do this, but 100,000 customers are signed up to it. And because they use energy at these times, it reduces demand for energy at peak times and uses it at times when it's otherwise more wasted. Yeah. And that's good for everyone. It's good for the system. You know, we've got another one, um, 1.2 million customers signed up for saving sessions. So in the UK, National Grid pays coal power stations to be on standby in winter in case we're short of power. It costs a fortune. I think last winter, £435 million we paid to have them just on standby. And, and what we've identified is actually, look, we've got 1.2 million customers who've signed up that we can message them and say, hey, look, today at peak time, if you use less, we'll pay you money, right? Um, and they shift. I mean, look, no one knows what a megawatt is, two or 300 megawatts. Yeah. It's the equivalent of, I don't know, a large power station or a, a large city. They move all that power out of peak demand. So we don't need to use that coal. And it costs a lot less. It's cheaper, cleaner, and customers benefit. Uh, you know, electric vehicles. If someone's got an electric car, they use twice as much electricity as, uh, as someone without. And of course, look, today, electric cars are typically um, have, have been owned by wealthier households. But that's changing. Over the next few years, electric cars are, to buy are going to be cheaper than petrol cars. And as long already- as they sort out the infrastructure, though, for charging it. Because honestly, I've got an electric car and the range fear. Yeah. It's very real whenever I get in it. <laughs> yeah, so we can talk about this because I mean, I've got one too, right? I've had one seven years and kind of live that life, right? And you know, I'll go from London to Teesside yeah. quite happily. And um, First of all, for those people who can charge at home, which is that 65% of people with a car in the UK have got off-street parking, so they can charge at home. We interface with the car or with their charger to grab the power when it's cheapest. So they don't need to think about it. Just plug in when you get home and the car will automatically charge cheaply. On those products, it costs £2.30 to do 100 miles. I think on a petrol diesel car, you're talking 20 quid for 100 miles, right? So this is how we can use the big, the kind of thing you're describing from Denmark, but actually for consumers' benefits as we go green. And it works because of the big tech. Right, I know we've got loads more to ask you, but should we have a little break? Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Can I ask you again about the origin of Octopus Energy? You approached a fund called Octopus, who uh, you know gave you your sort of startup capital. One of the big complaints in the co- in this country from entrepreneurs is you simply can't get the capital here. How much of a challenge was it 
for you getting that capital. And do you accept, because I certainly think it's a problem. I mean, one of the things I was, uh, you know, I'm slightly obsessed by, I have sort of sleepless nights about is, you know, we've got this world leading AI business called DeepMind. It was sold to Google in order to grow for 500 million. It's probably worth 100 billion or something. No, God knows. So it's, you can't really put a price on it. And we gave an enormous amounts of value were given away to this, you know, to Alphabet, this, you know, enormous American business. And that seems like a huge missed opportunity for the UK. You've remained a UK business. Were there ever temptations to raise capital abroad to, or to move abroad in terms of domicile and all the rest of it? I think the UK is actually pretty good for very early stage investment. There's a bunch of schemes um, promoted by the government uh, that make it easier to invest in you know, early stage startups here than in most countries. Uh, but I think the, um, you know, the real challenge comes at that uh, later stages where, uh, for a whole pile of reasons, that, that the big investment you need for big growth companies is much harder to come by in the UK. In fact, I mean, in our case, uh, our first investors were from the UK. But since then, uh, it's been Australia, Japan, Canada, uh, transatlantic. And most conversations I have today are really with global investors, uh, which on one hand, uh, you know, at least means uh, companies like ours have got a very good uh, set of relationships globally and a global overview that helps us build big export businesses. But on the other hand, I think it means that uh, there's a lot less capital available, both for public and private companies in the UK. Uh, I speak to an investor from Singapore. Uh, that said, you know, their view is that UK companies are 40% undervalued because of this. And so I think that makes it then harder, even for a lot of the global capital, because, you know, they don't want to invest in companies unless they're going to see the real value. I mean, we may talk about it later, but a lot of energy companies went bust last year yeah. because they'd all started with too little capital and they didn't have a big enough idea and they didn't have the tech. But in order to make sure that we had a stable, robust business from the beginning. You know, we raised 10 million pounds of capital, I think 13 actually, before we signed a single customer. That's so how unusual. did you manage that? Because that's quite that's a lot of money to raise yeah. uh, on an idea. Yeah. So because for me, this was the fourth or fifth business I'd started and had a reasonable track record as an entrepreneur. Secondly, I had a great team, some of whom had done it together before. So we had a lot of credibility. And then um, thirdly, the founder of Octopus uh, Capital, uh, Simon Rogerson, you know, I met him and he already, they've got a venture capital firm, since so done VC, but they're also invested in some renewable infrastructure. So they understood that. And they were interested in how could you do more interesting things in energy? So it's kind of a coming together. Uh, and that was unusual. But I think that the challenge- and was it a challenge to persuade them to let you hang on to a chunk of the equity? Uh, yeah, it was a very funny conversation. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to share it. I, mean, yeah, <laughs> I think they said, look, Greg, you can have uh, 5%. And I was thinking, oh, I was thinking you could have 30. So that was the start point. <laughs> like Dragon's <laughs> like Den. Like Dragon's Den, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And where did yeah, you it, end up in that initial round? Well, I can't remember where it ended up. I mean, for me, the, the most important thing I wanted to do was make sure every single member of the, the team had equity. And, and, you know, instead we employ, I don't know, 7,000 people and every single one of them is a shareholder. Uh, so, yeah, we were talking about this last week about on the podcast. About how motivating where, that yeah, is. About and, you know, and, and do you think productivity. that has, I mean, since we're on to it, we might as well talk about it now. How motivating is that, do you think, for the business that everybody is a shareholder? Yeah, look, I think what it does, it, it, first of all, I think it's fair, right? So it's just, I think it's just, uh, given that we could, of course not every company can do this, uh, depending on your starting point, but we had the chance because we were a startup to set off on that path and make it something we determined to do. And I think it's fair, because if, if anyone does well, everyone does well. But I think beyond that, it drives incredible alignment. Uh, I think 
in most companies, right, people getting targeted on a KPI or getting a bonus for something, they behave in their own short-term interest, even if they're decent people. And that can very quickly lead to uh, really difficult outcomes. And competition between departments and, as you yeah, say, rational decisions taken because you think you're going to get a bonus. And, and short-termism, and this makes everyone long-term, right? Because, uh, you know, look, the company's been going eight years. And, and so you, people become very aware that this is a very long-term investment from them. And I think that makes them care about the company and our customers far more. Yeah. And do, do, do they have to put money in or do they, is it, I mean, free is not quite the right word, but are they in, in effect free? Yeah, it's, uh, it's awarded free. I mean, it's what you get when you join. You mentioned there about renewables and I know since a teenager you, you joined Greenpeace, didn't you? Are you still on the mindset now of trying to get more into renewables then? Because we still heavily rely on fossil fuels, don't we? And am I right in thinking you've invested in a company that's uh, trying to, is it X-Links? Can you tell us about that? This yeah, is a company course. which is to do with um, is world's largest subsea cable bringing renewable energy from Morocco to the UK. That's right, yeah. So, um, look, I mean, standing back on this, first of all, Look, we just had 2023, the most extreme weather events in since humans existed. And climate change only gets worse. You know, so look, last year, I mean, what did you have? You had more billion dollar losses in the US than ever before for weather. Uh, you had uh, wildfires on the edge of London. You had smoke for a month choking New York. I mean, it's horrific. I was there. And then you had, um, you know, I mean, tragically, 4,000 people were killed in Libya by floods. We can't hide from that. But I mean, look, the, the really positive news is that renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels. And I talked, I gave examples earlier. Now, we may need to use them different. It doesn't mean that everybody needs to check whether it's windy before they turn the lights on. What it does mean is a lot of the big uses, industrial uses, charging electric cars that you can shift around, can all help us tap into cheap renewables when it's windy. And can I ask sunny. you, do you count nuclear as a renewable? I, don't, I think technically it's not renewable, no, but it's, it's not. It's carbon but, free. But right? are you in favour of nuclear? Because we've just had this slightly shocking announcement from EDF that... Uh, just Hinkley, which is a huge project. I mean, I think, you know, if it's ever up and running, when it's up and running, it would supply 7% of the UK's energy needs, an enormous project. But it's being delayed by two, three years. The cost has gone up to something like 45 billion. I think in, in real inflation adjusted terms, the cost has doubled. So I think it's sort of 36 billion in 2015 prices. I suppose two questions. One, should we be putting so many eggs in the nuclear basket? And two, are you surprised at the scale of the cost overruns and the delays? I mean, the UK's track record on large projects isn't great. But it's not just the UK. Mm -hmm. You know, you see this, I mean, the Berlin airport fiasco, you know, big projects in advanced economies so, so often go into these huge overruns. Um, it and just so, too. <laughs> yeah, so I think, look... It, it, you remember when the iPhone launched, it launched with Edge, right, um, as the wireless technology. We didn't have to wait for 5G. We just got going with what we had. Look, today, renewables are incredible. They're, we can have small projects. They're quick to build. They're cheap to build. The power is cheap. Mm. Um, and while we're building that out to meet our needs, so we can be looking at you know, whether we want to invest in some huge projects, whether we try and do small modular reactors for nuclear. But the point is, we don't have to you're wait. Not, you're not, as, as somebody who is green, you're not opposed to nuclear. No, not at all. I mean, look, the, the problem is just it, it's expensive and slow and gets more expensive and gets slower. But, uh, you know, mm. if we can do it, 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 it there's no problem. I, I was going to say, on this question, though, I think, first of all, I think it's the job of companies like ours to enable us to reduce our impact on the planet whilst living the lives we want to live. So this is not a sackcloth and ashes world. You know, our job is to provide for the same quality of life, if not higher, the same price, if not cheaper. But that, So that takes me on to something that's massively on my mind, which is... 
if you look at, I don't know, an economy like France, uh, consistently they've had lower prices, not because of competition of the sort we've got here, but because they invested in, in their case, huge nuclear reactors over the long term. And I suppose the question is, it's not to say competition is wrong, but many would argue that the strategic failure of successive British governments is to ignore in, you know, the enormous investments you need in, in generation. And if they'd done that in renewables, for example, on greater scale at an earlier stage, we wouldn't have lived through the terrible or the scale of the cost of living crisis we had over the last two or three years. So I suppose it's just to ask you, do you think the structure of the market here is is right, that we've got this competition between customer-facing businesses like yours but also competition in generation, which many would say is just wrong. I mean, by the way, France has a very similar structure. You know, they've got competition in retail. Uh, EDF is big in it, but so are Total and uh, NG, NG, and a whole bunch of smaller companies. But they also had industrial right. policy, which led yeah. to the creation via EDF these days in terms of you know ownership. But they had you know they had industrial policy, which was all about building these nuclear plants, and, and that was government directed in a way that we haven't had in this country. And you might say that's similar to high speed rail, where in France they built Ooh. the TGV and they could just take big decisions. State to build planning fast. is what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah, but I think actually that was about their ability to deliver big projects, whether they be nuclear or rail or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in the UK, whether it's government backed or not, for example, you're talking about nuclear. We're just not as good at we're we're just rubbish. You, so our problem is we're just rubbish um, at big projects. Is that your argument? I mean, let's take our market structure for energy. Right, every half hour in the UK, there's an auction for the electricity price, and it sets the electricity price for the whole country. It's set by the most expensive unit generated every half hour, which is why during the gas crisis, electricity prices were high too. Um, if we had a different market structure, for example, you know that was a, a regional basis, Scotland would have the cheapest electricity prices in Europe, cheaper than any other country. And manufacturing and data centers would be moving to Scotland, not only from other parts of the UK, but from uh, other countries. And by the way, not just Scotland, Northern England, Wales would all have among the cheapest energy prices in Europe because of our renewables. Uh, but we've got this crazy market structure that means you don't ben- you don't see the benefit of this. How do you change that then? Because that sounds like that needs should to change. Ch- or should yeah? it be changed? Well, let me give you an example why it should be changed, right? I think last year we might have spent something like three billion pounds as a nation turning off wind farms in Scotland when it's windy. Now, the reason for that ostensibly is that you don't have enough transmission cables to bring the power to England. Mm. But another market structure would just say, hey, look, it would surely be better to give the people of Scotland and the businesses of Scotland cheap electricity at those times rather than turning off the wind farms and charging everyone this same bonkers high price. I mean, it's a really compelling point, you know, in the context of a government that since 2019 has allegedly been committed to levelling up, if you gave the North, yeah, Scotland, the Wales, Scotland, other places where power yeah. is intrinsically cheap, those cheap prices, as you say, would give them an enormous competitive advantage, wouldn't it? It wouldn't. Look, um, by the way, every region would see the prices fall. It's just those that have got the most renewables would see them fall by further. Yeah. This idea that it would Tracked attract investment. I- investment is also compelling. Well, it's really Jobs. compelling. I was going to say, look, we just had the terrible news about Paul Talbot. And yeah. in part, that brought climate policy and energy policy into the conversation. And the reality is we've got solutions like this Literally sitting at our feet today, uh, work by FTI Consulting for Ofgem said that this kind of regional pricing would save £62 billion between now and 2040. £62 billion, That is right? incredible, isn't it? By the way, that's more than you were talking for that nuclear power station. Yeah. Well. Um, and so I think, uh, and by the way, we think that's an underestimate because it didn't factor in the savings in infrastructure because you don't need as much transmission, as many pylons. 
and it, would, it doesn't factor in the savings you'd get when industries relocate here and create real growth. By the way, all of this starts because you asked about X-Link, the project to build a cable yeah. to Morocco. That would also provide 7% of the UK's electricity. Wow. And is it happening? Is it definitely going to happen? I think that, look, uh, it requires more uh, governmental kind of agreement, not just here, but along the route. There's a very good chance of it. And, and if it does, the interesting thing is you always see these graphics, don't you, on the internet that say, uh, you know, a postage stamp size of the Sahara could produce enough electricity for the world. Well, we need to build that system. Uh, today, we have these long distance pipelines bringing gas around the world. It's a lot easier to build a long distance cable. Um, uh, the longest cables in China are longer than this. This runs at half a million volts. In China, they've got million volt cables. Uh, the, the voltage is important because it reduces the waste. The waste, yeah. yeah. Um, so all the tech is there to do these things. Yeah. And they're probably easier than building for, I mean, by the way, not to compete with them, uh, but in an energy mix, it's a lot easier than some of the big yeah. projects we look at. A couple of things, since we're on that point, I needed to ask you about. One, is the process for setting the floor price every three months, is that a rational approach? And secondly, during the cost of living crisis, there was a huge amount of talk about how we need a social tariff, lower prices as a right for people with lower incomes. Nothing's happened. So on those two topics, so the floor price is the auctions to build wind farms, right? Um, and um, sooner or later, I think we need to move away from a world where this is all driven by government and government subsidies. Uh, you talked earlier about central planning, Robert, but I mean, the reality is um, in 1980, Mikhail Gorbachev visited London and uh, said to it Mrs. Thatcher- This sounds like a Rory Stewart start to a history. Oh, God, is that? I'll take that. Go on, take um, us back to the yeah, 80s. I'll take us back to the 80s. Um, Mikhail Gorbachev visited London and said to Mrs. Thatcher, uh, who does your planning? There are no cues. And she said, it's market forces. And, and I think uh, challenging electricity, uh, in particular energy, is it centrally planned you know, there's a, there's a team in Whitehall, great people, really dedicated, but, you know, who are deciding how much wind power we need and where it will be based. And, you know, look, if you're Tesco, you don't have a government department telling you what breed of potatoes yeah. they're going to build where, and then you've got to buy them. And I think we need to move more to a world where, look, we identify we've got customers who want cheaper power. We can build that infrastructure in the right place to get it to them as cheaply as possible. So I think we need to move to that world, Robert. Yeah. But hang on, but on, on that, power is a natural monopoly and you know one of the reasons we've got this competitive system is to prevent you know the the risk that somebody like you ends up with 100% of the market and then there's no competition and you put prices wherever you like and then we're back to a world of you know essentially the role of government being all about just making sure you don't charge too much um Last year, we saw lots of businesses going bust as a result of competition. So whether you think that was a good thing or an appropriate thing or, or not, but you can't you can't just leave it to the market. Because if you just leave it to the market, eventually we'll end up with just one company, won't we? I mean, uh, we haven't got just one supermarket. Um, in fact, the rivalry between supermarkets is so intense because you've got a small number of very well-run organisations that are obsessed by how do they beat the others on price. And, you know, you still get competition. Like, uh, we all thought the supermarket system was kind of fairly static and then moved Aldi and Lidl with even lower prices and different business models. Energy should look more like that. It was, it was carnage when you had 60 fly-by-night operators that didn't have the capital to invest, that, that weren't bringing... Look, I talked earlier about a few of our innovations. There are many, many more, all of which bring prices down for customers. That takes investment yeah. and it takes you know real capabilities. Uh, can I can I ask just a little bit more on Kraken in terms of, of competition in the market? Because what people might not realise is Kraken is actually used by other energy companies, your rivals as well, isn't it? So how does that 
work out in the business? Is it two very distinct separate businesses? And are you not worried you're helping the other companies you're competing against? Yeah, um, Energy is a huge sector. And so what you find, like if you look at the oil sector, for example, uh, you'll find large oil majors will collaborate on exploration. They'll then compete bidding for licenses to extract. One of them will then sell the product they've extracted to another who'll ship it. Someone else will trade it and, and it might end up in someone else's forecourt. So up and down the, the supply chain, they compete like mad, they collaborate um, and they trade. And it's the same in this world. So I think the thing about Kraken is it's the first kind of new software to run large energy, large utilities globally for decades at scale. And it does so in a genuinely dramatically better way. And so uh, from our perspective, it was quite funny talking to the companies when they started licensing it, because one of them would go, look, um, if we license this, first of all, we're creating revenue for you and you, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're handing our uh, business process to you. Because that's where a lot of your money's come from. That's the bit of the business that's in profit, isn't it, compared to the energy retail side, which is, is in a loss at the moment. Yeah, well, I'd get on to that in a sec, but I yeah. think the other, I said to them, look, my shareholders are saying, why are you giving the crown jewels to your rivals? And the reality is, look, um, the energy sector is going to transform over the next 10 or 15 years globally. And Kraken's got a really powerful role to play in that. And there was no point limiting it either because of our concerns or the, the other companies. So we just created a, I don't know what the correct word for it is, but Chinese wall in the business. Yeah. People running Octopus Energy can't see what's going on with Kraken's clients. If you go around the offices, it's all sealed off. But you know, Octopus has been a really great kind of pioneer to test all the innovations, de-risk them, and then all the Kraken clients get the same. You haven't actually answered my question on social tariffs, so are you in favour of them? Everyone's in favour of social tariffs till you define it, and that's who pays. So you know, do other customers pay? to subsidise the bills of those who uh, are less able? Or is it um, is it, a, is it, is it a state subsidy? And so what's yeah. your view? What it, what should it be? I think, first of all, we need a vastly more efficient energy system. I talked earlier about the many billions we waste by having an inefficient system. At the end of the day, if we can free up money by being more efficient, we can then use that to address questions of equity and fairness. And that might be a social tariff. I think um, there are lots of approaches, though, that might say, for example, should everyone get um, you know a certain amount of power for free? Should we get rid of standing charges? Should we get rid of standing charges for a chunk of people? And I think these are all genuinely valid questions. But I think it's too easy just to go, yeah, we're in favour of social tariff without asking those difficult questions. Do you genuinely see a day where energy is going to be cheaper, where it's actually going to be like affordable for, for families who are, you know, for a long time have been struggling with it? Um, look, uh, I think it's pretty grotesque that we know that renewables at the time they're being generated are the cheapest power we've ever had and on the whole, they get cheaper every year. Right, even the stuff about you know offshore winds gone, gone up in price, only that was driven by the inflation and interest rates caused by fossil fuels. Our addiction to fossil fuels is what's kind of caused the energy crisis. It means we've got a system that doesn't reveal the, the, the real benefits of renewables. Uh, I think with, with system change, we really can see prospects of cheaper energy. So do you think Rishi Sunak in not reforming the planning system to speed up renewables development has made a serious mistake? I would love to see. There are two things we need to do. One is to be able to get grid connections faster and cheaper. Which he's talked about. Yeah, it's great. It's the number one thing that both uh, Richie Sunak and, and, and Jeremy Hunt and Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves talked with me. So it's great that they, yeah, there is this understanding we need to fix it. But well, we haven't got a plan yet, have uh, we? I think Jeremy Hunt announced some measures in the... Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's announced some money. Well, and also some measures to speed up grid. So we need to see what that looks like very shortly. But, yeah, look, we can build a wind farm in, in, in a year... Right, a lot less than that. The engineering is so fast, but it can take 10 years to get a connection or more. 
and you can't get planning permission. So we need to sort out grid connections and planning permission. By the way, for where people want it, one of the best things we, products innovations we did was we created something called the fan club. If you live near a qualifying turbine, you get 20% off your electricity when it's windy, 50% when it's very windy. That's the underlying physics, right? And 22,000 communities have asked for wind turbines as a result. Mm. It's just, we need reform to be able to bring this. There's one question I'm desperate to ask you, given you're such a technology-based business. Um, how are you using AI to improve Kraken? Kraken's always used AI to do things like forecasting. So, for example, we forecast every smart meter at the half-hourly level for two years, and that gets revised four times a day. That enables us to far better match supply and demand in a renewable world. But in, in customer service during the energy crisis, which we're still in, but it was, you know, particularly during the heights of it in, in last winter, we were getting twice as many calls from customers who were struggling, and they were lasting twice as long as usual. And I think what a lot of companies did in response to that was, you know, it's really hard to recruit and train people quickly. So they were having very long wait times, and they were limiting the number of people that they would speak to you know, in emergencies and things like that. And so uh, what we did was we very quickly deployed AI. And by May of, of 2023, maybe April, 45% of all our customer service emails are being written by AI. It's not perfect, but it gets a, a, the AI written emails get an 80% customer satisfaction rating and human written emails get 65. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and there's a couple of things. I spoke to one of the founders of OpenAI and he said, oh, I assume it's just like smart FAQs. And I said, no, it's doing the hard stuff. Because Kraken's got every phone call we've ever had transcribed, every email we've ever received, and it's got every statement, every payment, uh, every meter reading. When you've got a problem, for a human to dig into it, it's quite hard because you look into all these different kind of historical transactions. But the computer can look at that really quickly. So the combination of the AI and Kraken's kind of ability to look at all that data. And is it OpenAI that's providing the co-pilot here? Or? Sort of. I mean, what we've got is, a, look, as a tech business, we, we employ, I don't know, 800 software engineers globally, and 40 or 50 data scientists. And so what we've done is built our own integrations with OpenAI's language model, but do an awful lot of work to make sure OpenAI never sees personally identifiable information. Uh, there's a load of quality checks. But the interesting bit is, by moving quickly into this, what you discover is very often, for example, that the email to a customer will say, of course you can have a £350 refund. Um, it'll be transferred tomorrow. So the AI will send that, by the way, with a human signing off and checking it. But at the same time, the AI will now create the action. So as well as saying... Ah, so it goes, then goes and process the bank transaction. Yeah, and again, our team, who, who love this, by the way, because it's less wasteful typing. You know, the AI writes it, they yeah. check it. You know, less kind of monotonous processes. And they're able to give better service because they can really then focus on the ones that need them. Is AI also responsible for spin the wheel? <laughs> because honestly, I have never won anything. I've given on that. up. I've given yeah. up. Does so, anyone I'll win? tell you what, the Wheel of Fortune, there are 32,000 winners a month, right? Who and, are um, they? So, what, for, for anyone who doesn't know, right, when you submit a meter reading at Octopus, you get the chance to spend the Wheel of Fortune yeah. and, and win prizes. Um, I, the insight of this, by the way, was my, my youngest son was, actually my oldest son, was playing on a, an iPhone game. And at the end of every level, you got the chance to spin the wheel and win coins. And, and I'd always worried, I hated the fact that when we asked people to submit a meter reading, we're literally saying, please, will you take time out of your day to go on something that is a bit of a hassle? And in return, we'll give you a bill. It's not a great deal. Yeah. So we, it was like, how can we make it more interesting? Gamify it. And, and yeah, and it was the fun of the, the spin the wheel. And so... Um, and when you... The fun do, do is customers winning, like, though, it, it drives us up the wall, <laughs> but is it, do most customers like it? <laughs> I think, look, on average, I think there's one win a year if you spin it every month. 
Right. right. So, um, but because we keep growing, because <laughs> we we'll keep see. growing, we have to keep increasing the number of winners. So yeah. I'll double check what the latest is. But it's quite fun on Reddit and Twitter yeah. because people jump in and say, I've just won. So it does happen. Yeah. My partner told me, because I checked in with her yesterday about how we were doing on it. And she said we'd won eight octal points, which is the equivalent Yay. of one pence. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. No, no, I think, right. I, we I think, we're, I think we're slightly out of Time. Yeah. The question, so I think the question is, uh, having spun the wheel and come on, <laughs> uh, do you feel a winner up right now? Um, look, I think um, that wasn't a, a definitive yes. I'd <laughs> <laughs> have been very upset if we had said yes, actually. We, we wouldn't have done our job properly. Go I on, think the, the two things that are not obvious are Octopus is truly global now. So although, look, yeah, we're uh, I know, the biggest electricity company in the UK, just about the biggest provider of energy mm. to households by revenue. I think um, uh, we operate in our brand in six other countries. And it's growing really rapidly. Uh, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Japan, others kind of following the same path. I'm really proud to be a British business that's doing that. We're building renewables. About half of the renewables we've built are in the UK, but about half are across a whole bunch of other countries. And then we license our technology genuinely globally. Uh, there are 52 million utility accounts now on Kraken as a result of that. And, and so I think building a, a business that is well known as an energy provider, and hopefully a very different one in the UK, by the way, very different, a net promoter score, customer satisfaction is 44 points higher than the next energy company, according to a management consultancy. Um, but actually, the big thing is what we don't see in the UK, which is all of the tech and the growth elsewhere. And I'm really proud of that. Well, I mean, Steph and I talk a lot about how we need, you know, global leaders that are British. So and good um, ones. it's been, it's been, been, it's been absolutely <laughs> gripping talking to you and understanding yeah. about how you built this uh, extraordinary business. Yeah, so thank you very much, Greg. Up the borough. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So I thought that was completely gripping. What did you make yeah, of it? Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, the thing for me that was fascinating was hearing about where his entrepreneurialism came from, you know, being brought up by a single mum and the kind of ethos she instilled in him. You can see is, is basically what's driven him throughout his career. And it's totally fascinating, isn't it? Hearing about him like going from making computer games and selling mirrors in North London to ending up with this big energy company. And it's wonderful to meet somebody who's absolutely passionate about what they do. I suppose the bits that stood out for me, number one, as you know, totally obsessed with artificial intelligence, yeah. actually giving us the detail of how they are using AI and links with OpenAI, the creator of ChatGPT, to communicate more efficiently with customers. I mean, there was something slightly shocking about him saying that the letter generated by AI was better quality than the one generated yeah, in terms by of humans. satisfaction levels, uh, I know. Uh, so that was <laughs> sort of you know, tells us something about the world in which we're we're moving into. And then just all that gripping stuff about how you use technology to make sure that cheap renewable power gets to people as you know at, at, at the right price. Yeah. Um, there was a jaw-dropping moment when he talked about the missed opportunity, I think, for the government in terms of levelling up by giving making sure that yeah, the, the regions prices. where power is intrinsically cheaper could get that power at that yeah, cheaper price. I know. To think it could be cheaper for energy in the North and Scotland and Wales, the areas that need it the most is, you know, it's incredible that, isn't it? Um, also, spin the wheel. I think we could all agree that nobody wins. <laughs> <laughs> Except anybody who's listened to this episode, everybody's a winner. <laughs> yeah. and, right. Uh, so we'll see you all very soon. Yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs>